Hi, Mary. So we're through Halloween now. Uh, so are we OK to talk, start talking about Christmas now? Yeah, I think we are, Dan. Even on my, my usual rule of no Christmas before Halloween, I think we're safe now. So I don't know if we quite call it the home straight. But yeah, how's your planning Christmas lunches and meals and stuff going? Yeah, fine, fine. As I said before, I've seemed to be um, all piling up on the same day sometimes. But, you know, I don't don't mind a couple of Christmas um, meals in the same day. It's slightly funny, isn't it? I'm sure other people have found this as well, because we're all still working in a bit of a hybrid remote working world. It's kind of trying to coordinate days when people are in, in the office and that sort of stuff. So I'm feeling that there'll probably be a bit more working in London going on late November, early December. But interesting. Are you, are you seeing similar amount of people in the office these days to what it's been it's probably too soon to tell really it's possible it's sloping off a little bit with the cold weather but I don't think one week really tells us there's a trend but there's nothing like a party or a, or a meal to get people into the office so yeah I think I'm I'm with you on that later later in the year we'll probably see a bit more yeah and on Christmas your Christmas lights tracker in your local area what has that looking stuff going on Christmas lights is an interesting one there's definitely been some people on my road. They've subtly had their lights up for a good couple of weeks. They're obviously getting very excited about Christmas. I have to say yesterday on my walk home was the first time that there were some proper proper Christmas flashing lights. If I'm honest, it's still a little bit early for me, but maybe yeah, I'm just know. jealous. <laughs> I don't know about that. That seems that seems a bit that seems a bit too early for me. But yeah, as we said, I mean, I guess it's all all bets are off this Christmas because everyone's trying to make up for last Christmas and who can who can begrudge them that anyway. So uh I don't know. Yeah, quite. And and I have to say, with the clocks going back on the weekend, it was pretty dark on my walk home. So the lights did look quite pretty. So that's something at least. Yeah, so clocks going back, darker on the walk home. So is that a slight negative on people commuting? Do you know what? I don't know if this is going to be a particularly popular opinion. I don't mind it being dark in the evenings. I think that, you know, you go out for a, for a night out, you go out for a meal sort of feels natural for it to be dark when you go out kind of know where I stand as long as I'm wrapped up against the cold um so yeah crisp crisp wintry evening pretty lights don't mind that at all right so you like that yeah you like the dark evenings that is a little bit controversial I I do prefer the lighter mornings it's I mean it's tough enough in the winter getting up to try and do some exercise in the morning but when it's feel like you're getting up in the middle of the night it's not exactly helpful is it so it's nice that there's at least a little bit of light in the sky getting up sort of six or pre-six something like that nice does that mean we're both winning from the clock change i think i think we're both winning yeah how unlikely (laughs) (laughs) there we go on with the show welcome to investment uncut an investment uncut we cut through the noise when it comes to investing we're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions i'm dan mikulskis and i'm mary spencer Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. This week, we're returning to one of the big mega themes, I guess, in our industry. And that's a really important question of diversity and inclusion. And that was motivated in particular by the recent discussion paper launched by the FCA and others that I know lots of listeners firms will have probably responded to and been involved in. So to have a little bit of a discussion about that, we're delighted to be rejoined by Zoe Birdo. Zoe, welcome back. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Hi, Zoe. So I think previously we focused a bit more on your expertise in behavioural biases, and you probably gave the listeners an overview of what you do in that space. I wondered whether today you could give a bit more depth in terms of your role on DNI matters. So I am the diversity and inclusion coordinator for LCP. So I work really closely with the leads of our DNI group. I sit on the steering group and I work really closely with all four of our 
diversity and inclusion networks. I also sit on some industry boards, including the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries Diversity Action Group. So I'm really kind of tuned into what's happening across the pensions industry and financial services more widely. Brilliant. And of course, you were very involved in our own response to the discussion paper Dan mentioned. So you're hopefully going to give us some insights into the internal discussions that took place before we gave our response. Yeah, of course. We had some really good engagement internally. So we had a whole group of people working on our response and we're taking forward some actions following that internally. It's been a good driver to keep the conversation going. Zoe, by now, you know that we always ask our guests one thing we should know about them. And previously, you've told us about your involvement in singing groups. So maybe a quick update on that. But also, there might be a potential funny story around some tech issues that you were having as you joined this podcast. And perhaps you fill us in on that as well. Yeah, if listeners could see me now, I have quite an interesting setup going on with some some different work headphones and a microphone that I actually use for my singing. So it's humorously oversized, (laughs) but luckily had it to hand. The reason that Zoe's not able to use her work microphone is that we noticed that it had been chewed potentially by one of the animals of the house. (laughs) One of the two very naughty cats we have. And when we say chewed a little bit, I could see over the screen that it was chewed. So (laughs) I think damage potentially beyond repair. But anyway, we've worked the setup out. So let's get on with it. So Zoe, do you want to just give us a quick overview of the recent discussion paper and the sort of the nature of the responses to it, I guess, before we get into some of the specific areas that we discussed? Yeah, so I guess the background is that back in July, the Bank of England, the PRN, the FCA, published a discussion paper called Diversity and Inclusion in the Financial Sector, Working Together to Drive Change, really looking for feedback from all stakeholders across the financial services industry on their kind of proposed approach to diversity and inclusion, asking some tough questions, really, setting out some plans for what they might do as regulators moving forward. We did see a really good response to that. We're aware of quite a few other responses that were made, LCP responded. Um, We actually made our response public on our website. So anyone can find it and follow along as they're listening to this podcast if they want. (laughs) Brilliant. And we will link to that in the show notes. I suppose, Zoe, I was keen to, I mean, almost take a step back in terms of the content of the discussion. Clearly, what we're trying to do here is drive change in the industry. And I wondered whether you had thoughts on what some of the most important drivers for change might be. Yeah, I think that there's quite a few drivers to change, some of them much more short term, some of them more long term. And I think those are probably the more challenging questions that the regulators posed. And I think a lot of firms are finding there's a lot of good sentiment, I think, across the sector that most firms, I think, want to engage with this and they just don't know where to start. And I think the low hanging fruit in a lot of cases has kind of been picked up A lot of firms have diversity and inclusion statements, commitments posted on their website. Lots of companies have internal diversity and inclusion networks. We're seeing a lot of really powerful industry groups that have sprung up. I think it's now to the point where we need to start actually kind of driving change, and that's more difficult to do. So a big focus on data, data collection, asking the questions, what does good look like? Lots of good intentions, but actually measuring and articulating where we want to go and the change that we want to see is a lot more challenging, I think, in a really positive way. Fantastic. And I suppose what was springing to mind there was in the sort of responsible investment world, we talk about the risk of greenwashing. I don't know if you've got an equivalent in the sort of DNI space, but it does feel like there's been a huge amount of talk and a huge amount of commitment 
And it's now kind of, are you really walking the walk in terms of what you say you're trying to achieve? One of the things that I think lots of listeners will be familiar with is in the summer around Pride Month, seeing lots of rainbow flags around, a lot of logos changing, showing a commitment or support of LGBT plus people during that month. We saw a lot of companies make statements and step forward in the kind of height of the Black Lives Matter movement last year. And I think that now that's where this focus on data comes in. Firms are going to have to start walking the walk and not just talking the talk, although I think that statement of commitment is a good first step to take. Where's your sense of where the industry generally is? You sort of said earlier that a lot of firms looking to make change and wondering where to start. Is that the key sort of statement of where the industry is, or is there still a little bit of resistance and a need to make even the basic case in some instances still? There's definitely pockets of resistance. I thought that this discussion paper was really powerful in that it very clearly set out the case for diversity and inclusion. We know that diverse groups make better decisions, are more robust. It ultimately is the right thing to do. And the positioning of this paper, although it did set out the case and share some stats and figures and things, it really was set out I think with a tone of this is important, everyone should believe it's important. There's lots of evidence showing that it's important. Now we move forward and what do we do? There definitely are some firms and some individuals who I think are still having the conversation around why it's important. And I think that as kind of we move as an industry, I hope that those conversations become fewer and farther between. I think that the evidence is overwhelming. But yeah, as you've said, I can't say that it's completely across the board. Different people are in different places. I guess building on that, Zoe, what do you think are the barriers to change? So one barrier, of course, is that people don't accept the need for diversity and inclusion. But could you maybe talk around some of the other potential barriers that you see and where you've got thoughts on how you overcome them? Then obviously, please share them. I appreciate not all of these have answers just yet. I think one of the big ones is that representation is poor. I think it's important that we just acknowledge that to start with representation for a lot of identities and different underrepresented groups is really poor across the financial sector. It's getting better, but it's not there yet. And I think one of the biggest barriers is really a hesitation to move before everything is kind of figured out and fixed to say, we want to wait until we've got it sorted out before we start talking publicly about what we're doing. And really, when you're talking about pipeline, talent pipelines and things, it takes a while for these changes to feed through. And I think that embracing an inclusive culture and really making the changes now and stating that commitment is really important. And that shouldn't be a barrier to making change. I think from the regulator's point of view, there's a similar risk. And one of the things that we fed back in our response to the discussion paper is that the discussion paper is all well and good. It sets out some good suggestions. A lot of these are tough questions that probably aren't going to be answered immediately. And that shouldn't prevent change from happening. It shouldn't prevent the regulators from going forward and starting to implement some of the things that they've suggested and not wait until they have 100% of the answer before they start taking action. That does feel like a really key point, doesn't it? Because it feels like you might have a lot of firms who are approaching this with the best intentions, the best will in the world, but they feel like if they answered a question super, super honestly, with an honest appraisal of where they were, and they made that public, they would be open themselves up to quite a lot of criticism, even though they are approaching it with the sort of the best intentions. Do you recognize that? I do. And I can understand it to a point. I think this is where authenticity is really important. I think, and we've seen it across various industries, where you have companies who step forward and say, 
look, our representation isn't as strong as we would like it to be. And we're doing something about it. And here's our plan. And being open and honest and authentic, I think, goes a really long way to kind of heading off some of that criticism. It feels like there is a bit of a circular loop here as well, isn't there? So we know our representation isn't particularly good because we've used data to assess whether our representation is good, but our data is not going to be perfect, of course. There's going to be big gaps and there's going to be effectively incorrect data because people don't feel comfortable to identify as they really identify in a questionnaire at work or that sort of thing. So you need to create the environment. It's a bit like you said at the start, Zoe, you need to start walking the walk and then other things will start to fix themselves because you need to create the environment where someone feels comfortable to tick the box that they truly identify as to really assess whether you've got the representation and to really see that grow. And I guess it goes full circle in a sense, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think at this point, we do have gender pay gap reporting, but most kind of diversity metrics are not kind of required to be held. I think a lot of firms are early on their journey in data collection. Um, Some have made a start, some haven't really tackled it yet at all. So I think even getting to the point where we have any level of data is still a way off. That is where something like mandatory data collection and reporting could really be a catalyst, I think, for having that data and being able to do more analysis of it. But yeah, I think that making sure that you have a truly inclusive culture where people feel like they can honestly share that information and they truly believe that it's being asked for the right reasons is very important. And that comes back to that authenticity point. And again, open communication. And part of that is being honest about where you are and where you want to go, I think as a company, but also as a sector as a whole. So while we're on data, actually, I was wondering, do you feel we're getting to a place where there would be at least some sort of a consensus on what the right data is for people to be disclosing? Because I know any given metric, you can always say, well, it's not relevant in this situation, that situation, it's not representative, never going to be perfect. Do you see a world where there's a bit of consensus on the right data disclosures, or is that still really controversial? I'm not sure (laughs) on that. I also don't think that there's necessarily a future-proof answer to that. I think that language in this space is constantly evolving and changing and how people identify and how we group data together for the purposes of analysis is also changing. I think a few years ago, it was very common to have surveys or data analysis done on BAME populations. And actually, there's been a real drive in the last year or two to fight back against that and say, actually, different races and ethnicities have faced different challenges and barriers. And it's important to talk about challenges that Black people face in isolation and not just kind of lump people together because they are a racial or ethnic minority. I don't think that there is even a consensus now. (laughs) And I think that it will change. But again, I don't think that that's a barrier to starting to do something. One of the challenges is that it's really important not to prioritize some identities or characteristics over others. I think there is a tendency to lean back on, well, we're doing this or that on gender because people see it as easier to measure, more straightforward. That's not the case. (laughs) But even if it was, that's not where the journey ends. And the more granularity you get in data, the more you allow people to express their identities, the harder it can be sometimes to do something meaningful with that data and kind of gather meaningful data and also kind of a lack of standardization. And then what you do with that to kind of compare between firms, between sectors. Yeah. 
just picking up on that oh, i can hear your cat Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely staying in <laughs> The cat wanted to answer this question. I wanted to pick up on the point you just made about prioritization of perhaps more on the surface, historically viewed as more measurable forms of diversity, but take your point completely that it's not always an obvious measurement. How do you avoid that prioritization? I think a lot of firms, if I'm honest, probably started DNI with a women's network and they sort of built up from there. It feels like that's fairly common. And there's nothing wrong with starting somewhere, but how do we make sure that everyone gets the fair priority that they should do? I think if I had an answer to that, I would be in very high demand, (laughs) probably very wealthy. I don't think that there is a silver bullet to answer that question. I think that it has to be probably a range of approaches. I mean, I think that it is important to have leaders. And actually, we've seen, for example, within the LGBT plus movement, that actually a lot of traction that was made by gay men in particular in kind of the late 80s and early 90s, that platform has then been used to support other people within the LGBT plus community. And so having kind of some groups who have more of a critical mass even to start these conversations and drive change, I don't think is something to shy away from. I wish that there was a better answer because I think that especially when you kind of rely too heavily on data, it is easy to get caught in those kind of identities. I think for me, the approach that we try to take within LCP is to focus on creating an inclusive culture and challenging fundamental biases and stereotypes and trying to encourage people to be open to learning and treating other people with respect and being aware of the individual challenges that they face, as opposed to just having things be kind of built I guess, bottom up on just different identities. It sounds like it's really coming back to a theme you're talking about before. It's kind of not having to insist on getting everything perfectly figured out before things start moving here. So it's more getting comfortable with the world where we people can agree on how we can move forward without having all the answers and indeed recognizing that the answers can change a little bit, which is maybe a different mindset to where some people have been historically, which is assuming you can sort of figure this all out and then do it. Yeah, and I think it's also constantly asking for feedback. So I think being open to the fact that regardless of how good your intentions are, you won't always get it right. And you might have left out a group of people or inadvertently ended up kind of disadvantaging one group in kind of trying to progress things for another. And I think that it's just listening, making sure that if you are, for example, running a survey, it's not the kind of percentage of respondents that matters. You do need to give focus to underrepresented groups of people. And so doing things like companies who are looking at things internally and asking for feedback, often free form responses give you a lot more information and flavor than just a yes, no question. Do you think we're doing DNI right? Yeah, the yes, no questions enable you to put nice charts together, don't they? But they're not the things that really tell you what's going on. And I think especially within financial services, I think that scares some people. We like data that sits neatly in a chart and we can analyze and we can look at how it moves over time. And and I think that embracing the softer side of it and the people side of it is what makes DNI authentic and will also make it more successful. I was interested when reading our response in some comments about, I guess, different firms. I can't remember the exact phrase, but different firms doing different amounts. And I guess it just prompted the question in my mind about where the discussion is on whether some companies should do more than other companies, whether that's because of the type of workforce that they have or whether that's because they're starting from a different 
point in their journey. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that. My personal opinion is that I think all firms should be in scope of whatever regulation is rolled out, but acknowledging that that might look different depending on, as you say, maybe the starting place, the size, geographic location, all of those things need to be taken into consideration. But I think the principles should apply to everyone. I think encouraging kind of early movers and companies who have the resources available and have already made progress in this area, continuing to encourage them to push ahead and really, I think, pave the way for others is important. There's no need for every company to reinvent the wheel on these things. And it is important that it's collaborative across the industry. So I think that it's probably a combination, although I would like to see everyone move in the same direction. And on that, I mean, it's a point that was on my mind was, in particular, the structure within the investment and financial services industry. There are certain firms that are in the position to hold other groups of firms a little bit more accountable for some of these things. So, for example, we're consultants, we rate fund managers. So you could definitely say we're in a position to hold fund managers more accountable. You have trustees who are in a position to hold us and the fund managers are accountable. There is a real, you might say, sort of power dynamic going on there. And I suppose you could say that could work in a really positive way. But what I see much more often is firms are very reluctant to use that power they do have because they're concerned that they themselves wouldn't look as good in that light. And so everyone's a bit paralyzed and you don't actually get the accountability that you could do because no one can sort of get started. Do you see that happening? Or Yeah, absolutely. And I think this again comes back to the authenticity point and making sure that for DNI to be successful, it has to be ingrained across everything that you do and integrated across everything. And that is in a position as a client, if you will, or as a buyer of services, that is another way of exerting influence. And so I think that that by demanding more of providers, for example, that is just walking the walk, <laughs> again, in, in terms of having it being an integrated priority for a firm it might highlight areas where things are not quite as far along, but I think it would be less authentic to not ask those questions and demand more of others because we should be considering it in every stage of our supply chain, whether that be kind of procurement or suppliers, clients, at every side, it should be integrated into the work that we do. And it is interesting, a client of mine I guess over the course of the last year, really, have been on a huge journey in terms of diversity and inclusion. And they've now got regular updates from all of their advisor providers on what they're doing in the DNI space and putting together something that talks about all the great stuff that we're doing. But you still have to recognize that we have a very long way to go, as does everyone. And our industry probably is, I don't know if it's one of the worst, but it feels like there's a long way for this industry to go. It feels really uncomfortable to give a client a piece of advice, or it's not advice, but to give them a presentation that doesn't say, we've done this really well (laughs) because you always like to be positive and be giving proactive advice and all that sort of stuff. So it it jars a bit with our normal position in a client meeting and that sort of thing, but it's embracing that discomfort and accepting that we have a long way to go, I suppose. It's something that's more and more commonly asked when you're talking about kind of new business proposals and things. And I think that, again, I'll keep saying authenticity all day long because I think that it's really important. But again, I think it looks better to be open and honest and say, actually, we haven't cracked this. Nobody's really cracked it, but we're committed to it. And we spend a significant amount of time and effort and energy and money on focusing on this area and continuing to improve. And so I think 
that comes across better than just highlighting maybe the stats that look good and ignoring that there is fundamentally a bigger problem because I've never seen a company who's completely fixed it. Definitely, there are some that are further along on their journeys and do better than others, but I've never seen it done perfectly. I don't think anyone's quite there yet. And on that dynamic of talking about insisting on it in supply chains and pushing your suppliers and things, just balancing that with the power of regulation, do you see a world where this gets properly addressed without regulation or do you see regulation as the primary tool to sort of address it? Or do you see a world where buyers could hold their suppliers account more and that's actually what makes the change? I don't want to be too pessimistic, but we have quite a lot of history that we can look back on that shows us that these issues don't seem to solve themselves. I think particularly where you do have power that is distributed disproportionately, it's very difficult to change the status quo. And I think that there needs to be some catalyst. I think there's a lot of goodwill out there, but a lot of hesitation, particularly getting caught up on the practicalities of it. I think the logistics and the practicalities are often just as much of a barrier to any kind of resistance, if you will. So I think that the regulators can have a really powerful role in making sure that the sector does improve and head in the right direction in a timely manner. I personally don't really want to just wait and see what happens over the next 100 years. I'd much rather make sure that we're making progress, not so quickly that it causes problems or backfires, but in a consistent way. Is that a key tension then, the speed of it? I mean, when you have these discussions internally, is that a key point? I could see that being a key trade-off. Like you say, it's kind of how fast is fast enough. And I can see there being quite a number of perfectly reasonable different answers to that. Probably depends on who you ask and maybe also where they are in their career. (laughs) I think if you ask someone who perhaps is more focused on what's happening over the next five years. And that's really where their focus is. You see these kind of challenges in government as well, where you have kind of turnover within a period of time. Similarly to climate, there are transition risks, if you will. There's transition pain sometimes. If you're talking to somebody who's really focused on the next five years, they'll have a different view than someone who is perhaps going to be in the industry for another 40 years and maybe doesn't want to be as patient as others. So you mentioned improvements in our industry, but of course it's important that there's improvements in all industries in society. There are good reasons for that from a humanitarian perspective. There are also quite good investment reasons for that because clearly if you're thinking about an investment portfolio and you want your underlying companies to do well, it feels like this is a sort of sure way of achieving that. Yeah, so one of the things that we called for in our response to the discussion paper, again, is for coordination within the government and across different regulators and oversight bodies. I don't think that that should hold up change and action and progress, but it is important. Financial services don't exist in a bubble. And also the issues are much wider than that. But even when you're talking about talent pipeline within financial services, you have to talk about education, you have to talk about barriers for children and access to education and to services, exposure to the industry, child poverty, all these things are related and you can't really consider them in isolation. We would really like to see a coordinated approach as LCP. We actually work across many, many industries and sectors and it would be great to see a coordinated effort across all of those. When you start looking a step down at all of the industries that our clients 
work within it's even broader than that. Should we pivot slightly? I mean, we've been talking at a really high level there, but I guess drilling down a little bit, getting a bit more practical. Are there some simple things that are often missed that are just worth being clear about that could be quick wins, if you like? I hesitate to sort of say that. I did mention kind of low-hanging fruit earlier. One of the things that's really easy to implement is inclusive language, looking at communications, internal policies, making sure that employee policies are inclusive. Sometimes that means getting a specialist involved. I think that's the right thing to do if you don't have expertise internally to kind of know what that means or how to implement it. There are lots of specialists out there who can help. I think looking at recruitment is something that is longer term. It's not something that necessarily changes overnight, but even just kind of looking at where you're posting job vacancies, the language within job adverts, for example, that can be, again, a really quick one to implement. Then you get down to the level of kind of unconscious bias training and more fundamental changes. But I think the more we talk about things in an inclusive way, and that becomes the default position, the more likely we are to make decisions that are inclusive going forward. The language one is one that is so interesting because what I've found from my perspective, being really honest here, is that you don't notice it, to be totally honest. You can make the mistake of saying something that's not worded in an inclusive way and you just don't know you're doing it. And I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. And I think you were involved and there was uh, something that I'd written a little while ago that was sort of flagged up as appearing badly from an inclusive perspective to certain people. And I looked at it and I was like, wow, yeah, okay, I can see what you mean now. But I would never have thought that. I feel I'm slightly more tuned into it now. And I'm really grateful that happened, actually, because it just made me realize that you write everything from your own perspective. And sometimes you do need someone else to tell you. So that point around having even getting the right people to be looking at the language is just so important because you just won't see it if you're of a certain perspective. I think it's really important to encourage open and honest conversation because what you want is for people to be comfortable challenging things when that happens. Exactly, exactly. And I think that so in that case, we have four really great employee-led diversity and inclusion networks and the committees of those networks are available and engaged and kind of sit across our business so because we don't have a separate kind of DNI consultant that maybe sits within HR and actually those involved in DNI are really ingrained and often client facing and across our support departments it means that it's more likely that things will get picked up and I think that again that's also you being open to challenge and healthy challenge and then being receptive so next time those things can go really badly if somebody speaks up and says oh I think something that we've done was wrong and they get shut down they're not going to speak up again in future so it's also just as important how we react to things when they maybe don't go as well as they could have because it really sets the tone for what happens next time very good point Mary, I know that there's quite a lot going on in the investment side of things as well in terms of collecting metrics and kind of data collection standardization. I know that you've been involved in that. So I haven't been directly involved in the work we're doing, but I am familiar with it. And I suppose it really speaks to the point of there being lots of different layers of where do you measure diversity? So we've talked about measuring it for companies that are sort of under the remit of the PRA, the FCA. We've talked about measuring it internally in our consultancy, and then we've talked about holding other parties to account. You can measure it in trustee boards and that sort of thing. We've recently signed up to the Asset Owner Diversity Charter, which a number of consultants and a number of very large pension schemes have signed up to. The idea of it being very consistent with what we've talked about for this episode, to be honest. So it's formalizing a commitment to looking to improve diversity across 
the asset management industry by putting pressure on investment managers and by asking them to be more transparent about their own processes and their own employee metrics and diversity. So there's sort of two strands to it. So one of them is to do with the process that you go through as an asset owner to select and monitor managers. And there's a sort of toolkit that you can use to help you with that. But the other element speaks to the data comments that you made, where there is a standardized questionnaire and signing up to the charter commits you to collecting information via this questionnaire for the asset managers that you work with. So for a pension fund, there aren't that many pension funds signed up to it. As I said, there's mainly the largest ones where they have very high levels of control and oversight over their managers. I think it's also quite natural for consultancies to sign up because clearly our reach of different managers is huge. So we're in the process of integrating that within the toolkit aspects into all of our manager research, but also getting that questionnaire out. Does that come back a little bit to the potential criticism of someone saying, well, you have no right to put the squeeze on other people until you got yourself sorted out, but we're trying to get past that, I suppose. Exactly that. I was just going to say that I think this is a good example because that questionnaire was actually developed by the Diversity Project, which is an investment industry diversity group focused on improving diversity and inclusion within the investment industry. And I think that's a really good example of where these industry groups can step in because I think that it would be difficult for perhaps an individual firm to come up with something like that on their own unless they had all of that information to hand and were kind of prepared to publicly share it. So I think that's where collaboration can really move these things forward a lot more. If LCP came out and said, we're going to make all our managers fill out these questionnaires that they might view as slightly random. It's clearly a very important subject, but the collection of data and getting them to spend lots of time filling out these data requests. If one firm's doing that in isolation, I think you get a hell of a lot less engagement than if you've got multiple firms saying, no, all of us agree that this is really important. So I think it gives it that extra weight. Even if it was just two firms working together, you get so much more weight behind it than one firm on their own. Cool. Brilliant. So Zoe, as we're sort of getting to the wrap up now, what's one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this whole episode? I would say, don't be afraid to take an action, even if it's a small one, and then just keep doing that. (laughs) I think don't try to wait until you have the full and complete answer before you start trying to make change. Yeah, don't wait for perfect. Yeah, that's come through really strongly, I think, actually, so many angles here, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And Zoe, you've probably already answered this question, but perhaps you could summarise, what do you think is most underappreciated in this area? Actually, I think what's most underappreciated is the emotional energy that individuals put into this. And I think that often that goes unrecognized and unrewarded. I think a lot of progress at a lot of companies has been driven by really grassroots efforts and individuals who give over and above and often work outside of kind of their day job, if you will, to really progress these things. And I hope that as this becomes more business critical is something that is acknowledged. So maybe my other takeaway for everyone is if you see good things going on within your firm, maybe say some thank yous because a lot of effort goes into that. Very well said. Yeah, that's a really good point, isn't it? Really important to remember that. Zoe, recommendations for listeners, books, podcasts on any subject. I knew you were going to ask me this and I just don't even have anything to say. I have been so busy. (laughs) I've actually been watching a lot of the news lately and trying to kind of keep up on everything. So I'm actually doing quite a few kind of news podcasts and things, keeping up with the NPR politics podcast back in the US, trying to make sure that I'm keeping up with everything that's going on in the world so not a specific recommendation. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's possibly the doing. first 
time we've had recommended just watch the news or listen to the news. I mean, it's simple, but it's effective, isn't it? So yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Zoe, been a great conversation today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks both. It was great to be here. It's been a pleasure, Zoe. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. Do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.